All right, it looks like it's 9.30, so uh, let's go ahead and start our lesson, if everyone could take a seat. <clears throat> So, good morning and welcome to week four in our survey of the books of the Old Testament. This morning, we're going to begin a two-part overview of the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And this book plays a critical role, I hope you'll see, in detailing the history of God's covenant relationship with his chosen people, Israel. And I hope we're all fairly familiar with this text because J.D. preached through this entire book not too long ago. Today, in part one of the book of Exodus, we're going to deal with the chapters 1 through 18, which tell the important story of the Exodus, God's rescuing of the nation Israel out of Egypt. So that's this morning's lesson. Next, next week, we'll look at chapters 19 through 40 of Exodus, the last 22 chapters, which detail the giving of the law, the building and the filling of the tabernacle. Before we dive into our lesson, though, let me ask you a couple of questions. Ask this to yourself in your head. What is, you should know this because J.D. preached through all this, if you had to just summarize it, what is the basic storyline or the basic theme of the entire book of Exodus? The basic theme or storyline of the book of Exodus. And then secondly, ask yourself, why did God choose to preserve these particular parts of the Bible, we're talking about Exodus now, for us, and how do these passages contribute uniquely to that overall story of the Bible? So that's what we're going to get back around to. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time here this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we're gathered here thankful to pick up your word, your revelation about yourself. And Father, thank you for saints that want to take the extra time and come and dive into your word more to learn more about you. And Father God, I just pray that you would glorify yourself as we hear your word uh, that you recorded through Moses. Uh, Father, may you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week, if you were here, J.D. led us through the second part of the book of Genesis. And it's in Genesis where we learned about this fledgling nation called Israel. And we also heard in the book of Genesis about this very important covenant called the Abrahamic Covenant, where God promised many things to Abraham, but among them was that he would make Israel a great nation. And he reiterated those promises to Isaac and to Jacob. And <clears throat> so as the book of Genesis closes, the sons of Israel have left the land of Canaan and settled in Egypt. And at this point in history, the nation numbered only 75 people. These are Jacob and the sons of Israel and their families. This was the extent of the house of Jacob, or in other words, the house of Israel. So at this point, with 75 people, it's not exactly what you'd call a great nation, is it? And as we look at the closing passage in Genesis, we're going to be opening our Bibles this morning. So if you want to, go to the end of Genesis, right before the first chapter of Exodus. This is where J.D. left us off last week. And you'll see that as Joseph is about to die, he reminds his brothers that this place, Egypt, is not where they belong. And he tells his brothers... I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up 
out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph is already at the end of Genesis talking about the Exodus long before it even occurred. And then Joseph dies and he's put in a coffin in Egypt. And J.D. said you might put three little black dots there, dot, dot, dot. That's where the book of Genesis ends. And then, interestingly, 275 years of unrecorded history, as far as Moses is concerned, passes. And then we reach the beginning of the book of Exodus. And it's during this time period that a population explosion occurs. By the time the Exodus happens, the population of the house of Israel swelled to well over 2 million. So in the Hebrew Bible, the opening word is and... In a lot of our modern translations, the opening word is now. So if you, if you read these in combination, the last verse of Exodus right into the first verse, it seems to suggest that this book, Exodus, was to be accepted as the obvious sequel to the book of Genesis. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt, dot, dot, dot. And now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So before we go any further on the book, let's talk a little bit about the title of the book. Let's talk about the author of the book, because he's pretty important. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the time frame in which this book was written. So as I'm sure most of you know, the title Exodus was given to this book. Because the departure from Egypt is the dominant historical fact in this book. And as we know, the word Exodus means a mass departure. And hopefully by now, as you can see on the slide, everybody knows that Moses is the author of the book of Exodus and of the entire Pentateuch. Pentateuch coming from the word penta, meaning five, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. How do we know this? Well, because scripture tells us unapologetically, without hesitation, And there are many scriptures we could go through. I'm just going to show you two. Exodus 24.4 is one of them. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then even Jesus affirmed this. You remember he was talking to the Pharisees who believed in Moses. And he kind of took them to task. And he says, you know, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus affirmed Moses as the author of the Pentateuch. So who was Moses? Did you ever stop to ask yourself this? Was Moses just some random guy plucked out of nowhere and deposited into the Old Testament? No. If you look at Exodus chapter 6, there's some genealogies. I love genealogies, if you know me. And we can see here, if you follow the yellow boxes here that I have highlighted, hope you can see those. So Abraham fathered Isaac, fathered Jacob, fathered with his wife Leah, Levi, who fathered Kohath, who fathered Amram, and Moses was the son of Amram, and so was Aaron. So Moses, it turns out, was the great-great-grandson of the namesake of Israel, of Jacob. And he would have also been the great-great-great-great-grandson of Abraham. And if I move the slide forward, I've highlighted here for you the 12 tribes of Israel, which are named after Jacob's first sons, with the exception of Manasseh and Ephraim, who were born to Joseph and adopted by Jacob. But what you can see here is that Moses was very, very close to the namesakes of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was connected 
very much like JD mentioned in the book of Genesis. God follows a timeline of his, he follows his chosen people and their very specific genealogies to whom he chose to, to lead. You can also see uh, uh, Moses is the great grandson of Levi, from whom the Levitical priesthood was named, the, the tribe of Levi. So Moses was a Levite. And I just think it's really cool to see that he's not just some random guy. He's very connected to the history of the Old Testament. All right, so God called Moses at the age of 80, relatively late in life. And as we know, he lived another 40 years. And he died at the ripe old age of about 120. Never got to enter the promised land. Um, But Bible scholars believe, based on the words of Scripture, uh, that he would have... And and also... um, historical, uh, archaeological findings, that he probably penned the words of Exodus about 1425 B.C. So in layman's terms, that's about 3,500 years ago. That's how long God has preserved these writings for us, or about 2,500 years after Adam was formed by God. So the, the academic experts, the biblical scholars, think that he probably penned this maybe two decades after the Exodus, Somewhere, we know it has to be after the age of 80 when he was called to lead Israel out of Exodus. Certainly he, died, he wrote it before he died at age 120. So that would put the timing of the Exodus, the seminal historical event recorded in this book, at about 1445 B.C. Again, roughly 3,500 years ago, 2,500 years after Adam. Now, I bring this point up, and it's controversial because if you listen to the secular Archaeologists, they, say, they would say, Scott, that's wildly inaccurate. You're a complete idiot for giving a date at 1445 B.C. The secular archaeologists, it would be no shock to you that most of them are atheists. Scientific consensus says that the Bible is not an accurate, reliable source of information on anything historical, in particular the Exodus. And so if, uh, <laughs> if you want to know more about this topic... Um, if you are like the Bereans in Acts 17 who received the words of Scripture and, and dove into them to see if they were true, or if you're like the Thessalonians where Paul said, test all things and hold on to that which is good, you might enjoy this Christian resource. And it's a wonderful Christian Bible-affirming documentary, Patterns of Evidence, Exodus. And Tim Mahoney is the author. He takes a presuppositional view that the scriptures are indeed true as written. And they examine the scriptural evidence for the Exodus. Um, He visits many academics all over the world, both secular and Christian. They examine archaeological evidence. And you've got to see it. And there's also uh, the Moses controversy was a follow-up one on whether the, uh, the Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. And then um, Red Sea Miracle Part 1 and 2 that talk specifically about what Moses recorded in chapter 14 of Exodus. Wonderful Christian resources. So that's just a little bit of background information on the title of the book, the author Moses, and on the timing of the book of Exodus. So let's go to our outline for today. As you can see here, the first 18 chapters... We can, that we're going to be talking about today can be divided into two sections. There's Israel's time in Egypt, and then part two is Israel's exodus and the road to Sinai. We're going to cover both of those today. <clears throat> what I hope is uh, that this is not going to be this is not going to be an in-depth analysis. Okay, uh, I'm not going to be preaching or exegeting this text. We don't have time. We've only got about a half an hour here. 
Uh, but what I hope that everyone gets from this as we skip a rock across this outline is that we understand what God was doing at this time frame in history. That's the most important thing. And then we can talk about the theological significance of these events and why God had Moses record them for us. And I, wanna, I told J.D., I want to cover this as history because Exodus is the genre of historical narrative. But like J.D. mentioned in Genesis, it's historical narrative with a theological emphasis because we have these words recorded and preserved for us so that we can learn more about the Lord our God. But I want to cover these events as history because they are extremely important to the Jewish people, many of whom we have living here in Lawrence. They are descendants of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. So this is very important to them, and what I'm not going to try to do in, in historical narrative is to over-spiritualize the events. I'm not going to try to find hidden meanings, and I'm certainly not going to try to find Jesus in every single passage because that's just not being true to the text. There are a couple times when you have to see that, and we'll bring that out, but uh, that's what I would like to do. I want to treat this as historical narrative. So again, the book begins in Egypt, and this is detailed in the first 11 chapters and including the first 36 verses of chapter 12. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to me, if you have it with you, open to Exodus chapter 1. <clears throat> and in these opening verses of chapter 1, we learn about the population explosion that I described earlier. So let's look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Exodus 1, 5 through 7. Here we read, this. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And let me say, I know my slide said 75 people, but Joseph had Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh had three children. So add five to the 70 that came down. That's where we get 75. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And this, we go to point B here, is what led to oppression under the pharaohs. They put the Israelites under forced labor to keep them busy and to keep them in their place. You see, the people of Israel, the scripture says, they were scared of the Israelites because of their sheer numbers, so they were oppressing them. Now, let's move forward in chapter 1 to Exodus, uh, well, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and we read this. But the more they were oppressed, speaking of the Israelites, the more they multiplied and the more they spread about. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter in hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And into this slavery, Moses was born. And this brings us to our next point. This is where Moses grows up and he begins to mature into a leader. And he grew up in the courts of the house of Pharaoh. And as Acts 7.22 tells us, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It's very interesting. And so you could say Moses, and many of you know this, he lived quite a privileged life. He was a Hebrew adopted into the, the, the family of the Pharaoh and that's how he lived his life. One day he was out, though, in the streets of, of the city, and he sees another fellow Hebrew man beating another Hebrew man mercilessly. And Moses had his sense of righteousness inflamed, 
And thinking he was going to be a hero to this fellow Hebrew, he strikes down the Hebrew man that was doing the beating and kills him. Moses probably thought he was doing a really good thing, like, hey, they're going to see that I'm, I'm kind of with them. But word on the street spread fast that Moses was a murderer, and word got to Pharaoh's house. Suddenly, Moses was wanted for murder. And so since he was a wanted man, he had to flee the country. And he left for Midian. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder why Midian? and Where in the world is Midian? I had to look it up, so I like to use maps. Look at where Midian is. It's right near where we think Mount Sinai was. This is part of the wilderness. And look where Moses would have come from, from Egypt. He flees. He goes through what's now called, at the time, was the Egyptian domain, which is now the Sinai Peninsula, which is exactly where Moses would bring the Israelites back through. This was not uncharted territory. He'd lived here. He'd been through here before. And if you also stop to consider the fact that Moses was educated in the Egyptian system, in the courts of the house of Pharaoh, he would have had unique understanding of and access to the house of Pharaoh. Isn't it amazing how in God's providence, he uniquely prepared this man to go back to Egypt and to be the leader of his people, Israel. That's just incredible to me. It reminds me of this saying, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the call. And that was certainly the case with Moses, who objected and told the Lord, he wasn't ready for this, he's not capable of this, but God used him anyway because he had chosen Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. This, this was not Moses' call, it was God's call. And God sent him back to Egypt. And this is where the confrontation with Pharaoh began. But this was a new Pharaoh. Remember, a lot of time has passed. And this new Pharaoh, we don't know, Moses may have known him when they were younger, but the old Pharaoh that wanted him dead is now gone. But Moses somehow was able to access this new Pharaoh. And this new Pharaoh is not hearing it. He's not going to just let all of the slave labor that's powering his country's economy just walk up and waltz out. So because of this Pharaoh's unwillingness, God, as we all know, used a series of incredible supernatural events to convince him. We know very well the ten plagues of Egypt. The first one. God turned the waters of the Nile River to blood, killed all the fish. The second one, he brought frogs everywhere. It went into every house, every bedroom, every bathroom, every kitchen, every oven, every pot, every bowl in the Egyptians' homes. And then he brings what some versions say are gnats. If you read it, a lot of historians or biblical scholars think it might have been head lice. How horrible is that? And then he brings flies everywhere. And then a disease that kills a lot of the Egyptians' livestock. And then unhealable boils that not just affected the people of Egypt, but also the animals that were remaining that weren't killed. And then he brings a storm of hail with fire and lightning mixed in that just pounds their crops to the ground. And then whatever crops are left, God then sends the plague of locusts to eat up everything that was left on the ground. And then he brings the darkness that you would feel if you've ever been into a cave and they turn the lights off. It's like bone-numbing, penetrating darkness that lasted for three days. And then finally, to top it all off, God brings the Passover, the death of the firstborn. 
And it's interesting. Let me, let me note a couple of interesting things here. You know, these, these plagues affected discriminatorily. Did I just make up a word? They only affected the Egyptians. We, we think maybe the first two may have affected the, Egypt, the, the Israelites, but we don't know. But they were definitely not affecting, at least as far as we know, that the last eight did not affect the Israelites. They were just on the Egyptians. Secondarily, it's, it's interesting to note, it's always surprised me as I read through this, man, uh, Pharaoh's uh, magicians were able to turn the waters of the Nile to blood. And they also produced frogs. And, but it shouldn't be surprising because they were practitioners of the occultic dark arts. Satan does have some supernatural powers. But you know what's funny is when it came to the third plague, they tried and failed to produce gnats or head lice or whatever. And this must have been extremely frustrating. If we look at Exodus 18, 19, you don't have to turn there. But it was at these points, at this point, that the magicians knew that they were outclassed because they told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And apparently they gave up even trying because when it comes to the flies plague, Moses makes no mention that they even tried that. And you look at the, the boils plague that came later, how humiliating, how painful and humiliating when all of the magicians were struck with the same plague. So I think that's kind of funny. And throughout these plagues, most importantly, God demonstrates exactly who he is. And there's one more thing I want to mention, because I find this fascinating. It's been noted that each of these plagues would have been a slap in the face, not only to the Egyptians, but to the gods and goddesses that they worship. Check this out. Did you know that they had two different gods of the Nile River that they worshipped, or that they also had a frog god. And they also, this is funny, they had a frog that supposed, I mean, a, a god that supposedly manifested himself as a fly. They also had three gods of cattle. And if you've been to India, you'll see that they have sacred bulls and cows wandering around. So did the Egyptians. They would have been struck down in the fifth plague. Um, they also... <laughs> They also had a god and a goddess of healing and of health, but they were absolutely of no help when it came to these painful skin boils that hit the Egyptians. They also worshipped a sky goddess who was somehow missing in action during the hailstorm that destroyed all their crops. Um, they also had a god that they worshipped as the protector of crops who would have been also missing in action as their crops were beaten to the ground by the hail and were completely unable to do anything when the locusts came and ate all their crops. Let's see, they worshipped two sun gods who could do nothing to bring light during the three days of darkness. And then there was Isis, who was supposedly the giver of life. And then they worshipped Osiris, who was also uh, a life god. And they were both completely impotent during the night of the Passover when God, the true life giver, took the lives of the firstborn in every single house in Egypt. And speaking of the night of the Passover, this tenth and final plague that God brought on the Egyptians, this was a seminal event in the history of Israel. In fact, after that first Passover in Egypt, God gave Israel a completely new calendar based on the significance of that event. And it's still celebrated, the Passover, as we know, by the Jewish people today. Again, they're the descendants of the nation of Israel. And from now on, all the firstborn of Israel belonged to the Lord. And they had to sacrifice a lamb that was perfect, unblemished. 
And it perfectly illustrated the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, our our Passover, our Christ. If we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. So I said I wasn't going to try to find Jesus in every single passage, but you cannot avoid it here. The foreshadowing of the Passover and the blood that saved them. But again, God was demonstrating, most importantly, that he was the one true God, the true life giver, the creator who had domain over all of the created realm that he had spoken into existence. So why? Why did he do all of this? Why why did God bring all these plagues? Let's turn, if you will, to chapter 6 in Exodus. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Before the plagues even began, God said this, I am the Lord. Pay attention to all the I wills in this passage, by the way. How many times he says, I will. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians." But that's not all. Let's move to chapter 7, verse 5. God tells Moses here in Exodus 7, verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Go to chapter 8, verse 22. keeps repeating this. And you see in the second half of that verse, God reiterates his message to Pharaoh through Moses, telling him that he's bringing the plague of flies. And he says, that you shall know that I am the Lord. Now flip to chapter 9, verse 14. Once again, God warns Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus 9, 14, saying, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Go to chapter 10, verse 2. Get a feeling this is very important here. Once again, God tells Moses why he's doing these things. It's so that they can tell their children of these supernatural, powerful miracles that God performed and that you may know that I am the Lord. And after God had done all these things, the Egyptians and the Israelites all now knew exactly who they were dealing with, who was in charge, who was the one true God. And by now, move to our next point. The preparation for departure began. Turn in your Bibles now to chapter 12 and skip down to verses 35 and 36. Exodus 12, 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people the favor, given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Translation, by now, the Egyptians were scared to death of the Israelites and of their God, and they gave them whatever they asked for. Can you imagine? So here it is the next morning, right? God had done all these things, and that night, during the Passover, every house in Egypt had suffered the loss of their firstborn. Can you imagine the emotional state as you hear a knock on your door, and there's some Israelite people from your neighborhood standing there going, 
Um, we're going to be leaving now, but we could really use any gold and silver that you have. Oh, and we could also use some clothing for our journey. What would you say? Take our gold. Take, take any, honey, get the clothing. Just take it and leave. Please don't do anything else to us. Just go. And so if you read in verse 36 of chapter 12, <clears throat> thus they plundered the Egyptians. So it, as you read through this book and you wonder, why did these Egyptians so willingly give up their wealth? Now you know. They were already scared to death of the Israelites because of their sheer numbers. And then all of this, they were going to do whatever they wanted them to. And so began the exodus out of Egypt as Israel started their journey towards Sinai, which is part two of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. So um, beginning in verse 37 of chapter 12, it tells us about their departure from Egypt. Look in verse 39. We see people leaving, carrying provisions of unleavened bread to sustain them. And look, look at verses 40 and 41 of chapter 12. Moses gives us a really interesting little tidbit out of nowhere. He timestamps this event. And he tells us that the people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. Not just for 430 years, but 430 years to the day. Why would Moses stop and timestamp this? You don't have to go there. But back in Genesis 15, verse 13, as God was giving Abraham his covenant promise, he said to them, he said to Abraham, and this again, five generations before Moses was even a thought. He said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And Moses goes, he was right. It was 400 years plus change. God is true to his word. He affirms his promises, doesn't he? So interesting that Moses put that in there. Now, after they'd left Egypt, the Israelites traveled towards the Red Sea. I wanted to give you this. So somewhere in the um, fertile Nile River Valley, or perhaps in the, the Delta, which is spread out by now. This is a Google Earth image. We think that's where they would have exited from, somewhere near Cairo. We don't know for sure. And down on the lower right, you see that finger of the Red Sea, the circle, where modern biblical scholars think, we don't know for sure, but archaeological evidence seems to suggest that this would have been somewhere near where they crossed. Here's a little blown-up version, again, from Google Earth. And my red arrows kind of parallel what they call wadis, which are valleys that would lead you right through the mountains in the wilderness. Here's another blown up version. You can see this kind of big rocky uh, sand spit area on one side of the Red Sea, and there's a valley over to the left that most likely, if this were indeed the place, they would have come through to land on that beach. Now, here's another image of what that would have looked like. So they're here, they're encamped on this little shore, the Red Sea is to their back, and if you look back, you're hemmed in by these mountains. You can see that little valley. If this were the place, this is what it would look like as you looked back. That's, that's their exit if they had to leave this area. <clears throat> now, we know from Scripture that shortly after Pharaoh had let them go, he had a change of heart. Oh, man, what have I done? All of our slave labor, our economy. And so... Here, let's turn to chapter 14 of Exodus. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. This tells us what happened here. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses, 
and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea. Now, can you imagine the panic that these people would have felt? Here they are, looking back into this valley, and the Bible calls that the host of Pharaoh, the host of Egypt, thousands of men armed with chariots and horses coming through that gap, and you got the sea behind you, and they were panicked. In verse 11, they said to Moses, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? What, were there not enough graves there for us to be buried there? You've got to bring us here to die. So if you look at verse 13 of chapter 14, as we read the rest of what Moses recorded about this incredible historical event. Let's, let's read this. This, this, is, this is what Moses wanted us to understand about what happened here. Moses said to the people, beginning in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. And Moses must have also been crying out to the Lord at this point, because the next verse says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, that means the whole crowd, the two million people, moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So the Holy Spirit has now separated them. All the people of Israel are here. God's Holy Spirit is between them. The army of Egypt is here, and they can't approach each other. And there was cloud and the darkness, so now it's nighttime. But the cloud, the Holy Spirit, lit up the night without one coming near the other. The two groups couldn't come towards each other. Then Moses stretched his hand out over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Can you imagine some of these constricted, conscripted soldiers who were told to go do this? They're probably already thinking, man, what are we, this is crazy. This is the God of Israel. Did we not remember what just happened? But they had to go. And now they're like, oh man, it's coming. This is crazy. So uh, continuing in verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea 
the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, a lot of you might say, some of the skeptics say, ah, the parting of the Red Sea. Remember, God was not created by the laws of nature. He created them. They stand at attention when he tells them what to do. It's not a problem for the God that spoke everything into existence to do this with a little C. Okay? Now, after this spectacular deliverance at the Red Sea, Moses and the people of Israel rejoiced. That's detailed in chapter 15. They sang a song of praise to their God, the Deliverer. But, after only three days... They started complaining already. Uh, They'd started their journey. They were thirsty. They needed water. This was the first of many times, as you know, that Israel would complain. And this journey to Mount Sinai took about three months. And Moses records four times that they stopped along the way at Marah, bitter waters, were miraculously made drinkable so that they could uh, uh, quench their thirst. Uh, there was uh, an oasis named Elam where they stopped and rested. And then after that, they journeyed to what's called the wilderness of sin. And that is where God supernaturally brought bread down from heaven called manna. And he continued doing this through the 40 years. They were sustained with bread from heaven. And then the fourth stop at Rephidim. This is where we first hear about Joshua. And he leads the nation of Israel in their first military battle where they whoop up on the Amalekites. So during this three-month trek, God proved over and over and over again that he would care for his people. They were his chosen people. He'd made promises to them. He was going to protect them. And then finally, to close part one, oops, I'm sorry, I'm a little behind here. To close part one, here they are down in the land of Midian. And this is where Moses had gone, you remember, he met a woman named Zipporah, her father was named Jethro, and now Moses is back in this region. We can surmise that everybody knew what had happened, and Jethro, his father-in-law, probably heard about the exploits. Moses is leading them, and he stops by for a visit, and he sees Moses working from sunup to sundown, adjudicating all the disputes, all the little legal matters brought forth by these two million people, big, medium, and, and small, and Jethro says, Moses, you can't do this. You're killing yourself. You need to appoint people who can adjudicate for you at the different levels of kind of a court system. And Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice, and so he did that. And now, at this point, the nation of Israel now has their own judicial system. And this is where we're going to end our recap We'll come back next week, but let's stop and and ask this question. How do we summarize these first 18 chapters, all these events that happened that we just covered in about a half an hour? God made Israel a great nation. He fulfilled that promise to Abraham. He shows both Israel and Egypt his power and his authority over all the creation, and he shows them that he is the Lord And that there's none like him in all the earth, just like he said to them. And he does for them 
what they're hopeless to do for themselves. He delivers them from death through the blood of the Lamb, and He saves them through the waters. He rescues them. So at the beginning of this lesson, I posed the question, what is the theme, if you had to answer the question, what's the theme or the basic storyline of the book of Exodus? It's this. God makes Israel a great nation, and he shows them that he alone is their Lord and their Savior. And of course, this fits in perfectly with the main theme of the entire Bible, all 66 books written by 40 different authors speaking different languages from different socioeconomic backgrounds over the course of 1,500 years, all speaking in complete accord, in complete unity on one key theme, and that is this. It's all about God's plan to redeem his people from sin through the Messiah for his glory. And as we read through these first 18 chapters of Exodus. I don't know if you felt this way when J.D. was preaching through it, but it it should bring us a sense of awe as we realize who is this Lord, our God, the one true God, the creator God. We realize that he is the same God today that he was then, right? He's the same God who has grafted us into Israel as the body of Christ, by God's grace, through faith, and that same Christ who will hopefully deliver us again soon. He's already delivered us. He's going to do it. Uh, You see, when you understand Israel's origin story and how much God cared for them, how much he cares for us, how he fulfilled his promises to them, how he graciously saved them and they didn't deserve it, the rest of the Bible makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? And God uniquely preserved this section of Scripture for our benefit. And we have to end there now, but next week come back and we'll overview part two of Exodus, the giving of the law, the building and the filling of the tabernacle. And uh, you're dismissed for now, but come back in a little bit and we're going to come back and worship this awesome creator God.